Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. President Biden facing two big issues tonight. The first, developments in the long-running criminal investigation into his son. CNN has exclusive reporting that Hunter Biden's attorneys, who you can see here, met with Justice Department officials today. Sources say prosecutors are still weighing whether to bring several tax charges and a false statement charge related to a gun purchase against the president's son. And then there's the other big issue hovering over Joe Biden, and that's his age. He would be 86 at the end of a second term. We'll tell you what he's saying about that today that's different than what he's said before. Plus, the case of Richard Glossop on death row in Oklahoma. It continues to worry officials who believe he was wrongly convicted. This man has been given three last meals before being granted reprieves. Now he's scheduled to be executed again. Will the Supreme Court step in? And sales of Bud Light have dropped considerably since Kid Rock and others went ballistic on the beer, literally. We'll talk about how an effort to expand their customer base backfired in a big way. But we start at the White House, where tonight they are rolling out the red carpet for a state dinner with South Korea's president. You can see Angelina Jolie arriving with her son Maddox here. This is a glitzy backdrop for some of the problematic issues the president is facing as he launches his re-election bid. Of course, there's the continuing investigation into his son, Hunter, and the lingering questions about the president's age. He addressed that one today. With regard to age, uh, I can't even say, I guess how old I am, I can't even say the number. It doesn't, it doesn't register with me. And, uh, but the only thing I can say is that um, one of the things that people are going to find out is they're going to see a race and they're going to judge whether or not I have it or don't have it. I totally relate to that. I often forget how old I am also, conveniently. Uh, the panel is here to weigh in on all of this. We have a woman who knows her way around a state dinner, Alyssa Farah Griffin, lawyer extraordinaire Ellie Honig, who eats most of his meals in the green room. That's true. Communications expert Lee Carter, the author of Persuasion, Convincing Others When Facts Don't Seem to Matter, and former Congressman Mondaire Jones, who has no idea what it means to get old. Um, okay, so, but, but before we get to Joe Biden's age, since that's not going anywhere, let's start with the one that I find more intriguing, and that's this investigation, this ongoing investigation, Ellie, into Hunter Biden. It's been going on five, five years. years. And can you just remind us yes. about this? Because this isn't about the laptop. No. This, this started five years ago. What triggered this? This is not a complicated case. This is a case about two things. First of all, Hunter Biden's personal tax returns. Did he commit tax fraud? He's not some mega corporation. He's an individual. And second of all, there's this sort of obscure federal firearms law that says you cannot possess a firearm if you are an addict. Apparently he lied at a time when he was an addict filled out a form saying he was not an addict and obtained a firearm. That is not a five-year federal investigation. That is not a two-year investigation. That's a six-month investigation at most. So why has this been going on for I think nobody wants to make a call here because it is the ultimate 
Darned if you do, darned if you don't. If you charge him, if you don't charge him, half the country is going to be delighted. Half the country is going to be furious. And this goes back three attorneys general. This was started before Bill Barr. Then Bill Barr took it over. Now he's passed it on to America. Let me tell you something. Prosecutors are really good at passing the buck if they don't want to make a call. But this news that we saw that the lawyers are going in there to meet, that tells me that they have to, prosecutors have to be very close to an end game and an actual decision. But I thought that his lawyers were the ones who prompted the meeting, that they're like, give us a status report. Yeah, usually there's back and forth between prosecutors and defense lawyers. And if you're close to making a decision as a prosecutor, you would tell the defense lawyers, hey, if you want to come in and make a pitch, which happens all the time, by the way, nothing unusual yeah. about that. Now's the time to get in here. Um, Alyssa, will voters hold this against Joe Biden in this upcoming election? I think the voters who did last time are going to. We're careening into the rematch that nobody wants, which is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. 70% of Americans want someone other than Joe Biden on the Democratic side. 60% on the Republican side want someone other than Donald Trump. Yet both parties look like they're going to renominate those individuals. I think Hunter Biden was a factor that was an easy attack for Republicans to use. Um, it's less this case, though, that I think was important what Ellie pointed out. This isn't about some of the corruption, some of the, you know, financing that he may have taken from foreign entities. That That is what Republicans have kind of glommed onto. This is not related to it. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure it's a make or break issue. At the end of the day, he's not serving in the administration. He's not serving in the White House. It's a relative of the president. Lee, your thoughts? Well, I think 55% of Americans are tired. They have, a, they have fatigue about all of these probes, and they think they're politically motivated. I think 90% of Americans think that these probes are politically motivated, and they're tired of them. I don't think they're going to change anybody's mind. If you've decided you're going to vote against Joe Biden, you are going to be motivated to vote against <coughs> Joe Biden because of this. You've decided to vote against Donald Trump because of his issues, you're motivated by it. Otherwise, it's not going to change anybody's minds, and I think people want us to focus on the issues that matter most to them. Congressman? I agree. I mean, you actually don't need to do too much work to kind of figure out how people are going to view the race between Biden and Trump, who I think is 75 percent or more likely to be the Republican nominee, because we've had this showdown before, back in 2020. Uh, And I would also say the fact that the president himself has not been implicated in any of this alleged criminal conduct I think tells you that there are going to be a whole bunch of people, I think a majority of Americans, who do not blame him at all for this. Let's talk about President Biden's age. I'm not sure what we're supposed to say about this. It's not changing. Well, it actually is going up. I mean, it actually is going up. going up. It's going up, like all of ours. None of us are getting any younger. And so I'm not sure what he's supposed to do about it. However, he did address it differently today, Alyssa, than he has in the past. In the past, he said, you know, just watch me. Watch me. I'm, you know, basically he's saying, like, I get more accomplished in a year than, you know, most people are in a week or whatever. But this time he said, you know, I have given it a lot of thought. Like, as though this time he didn't dismiss it. He said, I've given it a deep thought. Um, and yet the, one of the polls says uh, for those who don't want Joe Biden to run for president, how much of a reason is age? And it's a major reason to 48 percent. It's a minor reason to 21 percent. It's not a reason to 29 percent. What's he supposed to do about this? Well, he can't hide from it. It's undoubtedly going to be one of the major issues on the campaign trail. And I think it was notable in the launch video that it featured Vice President Harris something like over a dozen times. They were leaning into, we have a younger vice president just in case. And for some time, there was kind of a skepticism in a notion that they were distant. The Biden uh, presidency was distancing itself from the vice president. But I thought that was by design. However, the White House stepped in it on launch day. The answer from the White House press secretary essentially saying, I'm not going to answer now if he'll serve a full term if reelected. That is going to come to ad campaigns, and we're going to hear that going into election day. 
I think it'll be interesting yeah. to see the role that the vice president, Harris, plays here. Because whatever one may think of her, she's not very popular, right? If you look nationwide, I mean, she got, what, 2% in the Democratic primary and is certainly not popular on the other side. So it'll be interesting to see if they feature her as a, don't worry, folks, we have her. She's good. She's here if we need her. Or if they try to minimize her. But, but Alyssa's right. I mean, the, the ad that came out today or yesterday uh, does feature her heavily. Yeah, so will that help? I mean, can they now, at this point, kind of revitalize uh, her image? I I don't think that it's going to be easy for a couple of reasons. Number one, she's not a dynamic speaker. In many ways, she turns people off for whatever reason. Really? Because I thought that people do like... Like, when she speaks um, in her element, you know, where we've seen her recently, um, uh, I think that at... I can't remember which funeral, but it it was powerful... Um, when she was speaking at some gun violence funeral. And she, um, I thought that that was something that people sort of did respond to her when she was on the campaign trail originally. So she's got a 36% approval rating right now. Yesterday she stood up, it should have been a slam dunk. She stood up and talked about women's rights, reproductive rights. She had an amazing stage, amazing setting, and she couldn't stick the landing on what she was talking about. This should be something that's easy for her to talk about. This is what we want to hear from her. In fact, Republicans are more likely to switch to Democrat because of that issue alone, and she couldn't get the message out. I think she has a really difficult road ahead of her. Mm-hmm. I don't think she is... I don't think she strengthens Joe Biden at all. So I, I disagree. Uh, I think she's a dynamic speaker. I think when she's speaking about issues that she's credible on and that the White House can actually do something about, she's received favorably. The problem is that the White House has given her issues that were doomed to fail from the beginning, right? Um, you know, and I've said this before, they, they, gave her, they gave her voting rights before the president had, had even come out in support of filibuster reform. They gave her the crisis at the border, which is this intractable issue that Congress is only going to solve through comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, and so I hope, moving forward, that she gets to focus more on issues like abortion and other issues that are top of mind for American voters, including a lot of Republicans and certainly a lot of independents, and and that she's able to be on the stump in the way we saw her uh, with the Tennessee Three a few weeks ago, which got rave reviews, and and which is a subject that she's credible on, the issue of of race and and, and injustice and, and how to, you know, solve for these problems using government to the extent possible. I will say, though, as someone who worked for a vice president that often got the issues that he didn't want to have to deal with on his portfolio, uh, Vice President Pence, the job is do no harm. And and I use Mike Pence as an example of somebody. He would show up and reliably deliver a speech, usually on teleprompter, and he very rarely made gaffes in the Trump presidency. Whether you like Pence or not, he was somebody who's seen as more of a steady force than Trump. What I see with Vice President Harris that I think is why the polling numbers just don't really align with, I think, expected popularities the ability to deliver a message just continually doesn't land. I at first blamed staff. I mean, it's not hard to just have a teleprompter speech and deliver it. But we're three years in and it's just not getting better in my observation. Mm. Um, Here's what David Axelrod said today about President Biden. David Axelrod, of course, strategist for President Obama, about President Biden's age. Oh, oh, sorry. (laughs) I'll read it. (laughs) Uh, He said, when you're looking at polling... When you watch focus groups, it's the thing that people bring up first. We're in uncharted waters. We've never had a president this old. But Axelrod says there are upsides to Biden's age, wisdom, experience, and perspective. And at a time when there's so much churn and turmoil, those three qualities are assets for him. Ellie, I I mean, well, not only interesting, it's true. I mean, as you get older and you've been in Washington for decades, you do know how things work. Are you surprised that he's not getting more 
credit for the wisdom that comes with age. Yeah, I've actually not heard that perspective from anybody. Of course, we all know and respect <laughs> David Axelrod. Um, one thing that I find is really interesting, I'm interested in the political people's view on this, though. Donald Trump's no spring chicken either. No, he's he's right. four years younger than Joe Biden, almost four, exactly four years, yet you never hear people say Trump is too old. I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because he just projects this sort of manic energy or I don't know why. I don't, something else. Well, I think Donald Trump, when he was asked about this question, he said it's not about the number. It's about how you present. It's about your. It's about how you're, how with it you are in many ways. And I think when people say in focus groups, and I've moderated lots of focus groups with different voters, and they will tell you they are concerned about his age. And it's not about the number. It's about his ability to deliver. You're talking about Joe Biden. Joe Biden, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that Joe Biden has more word-finding difficulties. Part of it may be because of his stutter, which he's talked about. But Donald Trump also doesn't always make sense. (laughs) No, no. And and you'll you'll remember, Reagan leaned into this and said, you know, I'm chalked it up to experience. My concern with with President Biden is there's got to be one line that you stick to on it or it's going to go all sorts of places and continue to be an issue. I think if we were in a different political era, a different moment in history, even five to ten years ago, this would be a different analysis. We are so polarized as a society that this now takes on an outsized role. Uh, Whereas someone who is literally the most accomplished president in modern history should be able to run on that. And and so long as he's able to to run for re-election, people shouldn't be overly concerned about his age. But it's people talk about that more than the fact that he passed all this incredible legislation. All right, friends, thank you very much for those perspectives. Next, how Bud Light found itself under fire, literally, in the culture wars. And what lesson is there for other popular brands in this? That's right. Sales of Bud Light fizzling this month, falling 17% after its recent social media campaign with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. On April 1st, Mulvaney posted two Instagram posts to her 1.8 million followers, showing them a commemorative Bud Light can with her face on it. Since then, Bud Light's parent company, Anheuser-Busch, has faced serious backlash. They tell CNN in a statement that they work with hundreds of influencers across their brands and that, quote, the commemorative can was a gift to celebrate a personal milestone and is not for sale to the general public. Tonight, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley gave her two cents on the controversy. Have any of y'all seen Dylan Mulvaney? Do you know who that is on the beer cans? Let me tell you something. I know that there are transgender people out there. That is not a transgender person. That is a guy dressing up like a girl, making fun of women. Every one of you women have seen that. We don't act like that. Yet companies are glorifying him. And then we're supposed to tell our girls, be strong and be confident? What are we doing? Lee, do you want to just share your response to that? Well, I think that this is a really, really slippery slope. And I understand the point Nikki Haley was trying to make there. I don't think she made it artfully or well. I think there are a lot of people out there who say the way that he portray- or she portrays-, portrays women is actually a stereotype of women. And if you want to make that argument, that's fine. 
My bigger issue with Bud Light is Bud Light itself and how they handle this. It's not the fact that they gave the can. They should give out cans to influencers. I think it's a very clever idea. They gave out hundreds of cans. I think that's smart. But what the problem was is the way they handled the crisis on the other side of it. What they should have said is not, we're trying not to be fratty. We're walking away from our base. They should have said, you know what? We are the beer for all Americans. We gave out to... Whether you're trans, whether you're a Republican, whether you're MAGA, we're the beer for you. We're the beer for all Americans. We're non-discriminatory. The issue would have gone away. Instead, they made it more political. They added fuel to the fire, and that, to me, is the biggest mistake. I think there are two separate things here, which is exactly what you said, how Bud Light has handled this and whether they they sort of messed up their marketing. And then just tonight, this is what um, former Governor Nikki Haley said. What are your thoughts about what she just said? I think what Nikki Haley said was crazy, Okay. If someone identifies as trans, you can't tell them that they're not trans. And so I, I, I don't know if she's feeling pressure to lean more heavily into these culture wars because many of her opponents or would-be opponents in the case of Ron DeSantis have become known for those things as of late. But it, I, don't, I don't know that she's going to look back on that commentary in a couple of months and, and, and be proud of, of what she said tonight. I think that's well said. What I worry about with some of the Republican candidates who are leaning into the cultural wedge issues is I feel like they're drawing a circle of voters that they keep shrinking. And it gets to a place where, you know, if you are coming out so hard against the LGBTQ community, I'm not trans, but I have friends are. You have people who have family members are. Or if they're not particularly even affected by it, they just don't like the meanness. Why is she going after an Instagram influencer? It's punching down. Talk about China, Nikki Haley. You are the U.N. ambassador. Like, it just feels it feels small. It feels divisive. And I quoted the stat to uh, last week on this program. Sixty seven percent of Republicans want to see want to see more protections for the LGBTQ community against discrimination. So why are we targeting and singling them out? You're losing voters by doing it. I'm, I'm frankly stunned by it because Nikki's smarter than that. I had the exact, exact same reaction. I'm, I'm almost thinking, what am I missing? Here, Why would people care so much? I mean, okay, so a big company gives these ceremonial cans to lots of people. Maybe you like some of them, maybe you don't. But why would that cause uproar and otherwise serious politicians or politicians who want to be taken seriously to dig in? And I understand the whole concept of choosing these culture wars, but I, but I do think there's a risk of overplaying it. I mean, look at Ron DeSantis, right? He's picked this fight with Disney where he's about to get thrashed in court, I think. And I think it's backfiring on him politically as well. And why do people care so much? Well, look, I think there's, there's, there's a base of conservative voters who really don't like the move towards wokeness. They don't like the change. They don't like all that it represents. And they want to go back to times where things were simpler. And that is fine, but we don't need to declare war. I mean, the the conservative values are supposed to be get government out of my body, get government out of my life, let me live my life. And that should be it. These culture wars are really divisive because they, they end up subtracting. As you say, you're narrowing in those voters. You are subtracting. And at this game, you're supposed to be adding. It should all be about addition. You need to add to your base. If you're Nikki Haley, you need to be adding more people, not taking away. And I think, you know, you're not trying to take Trump voters. That's not what Nikki Haley is going to do. You're not going to take DeSantis voters. That's not what her appeal is. Her appeal is something very different. She needs to find her lane, and she mm-hmm. hasn't yet. It's interesting. There's the politics, as we said, of this. And then there's the marketing that we said of this. And in terms of the marketing and Bud Light is one of the problems, Congressman, that if you're going to partner with somebody, they have to authentically like your product. Yeah. You know, I think that it's easy. It would have been easy to, to partner with 
President Reagan on jelly beans. He liked jelly beans, and everybody <laughs> knew that he liked jelly beans. I don't know that Dylan Mulvaney drinks Bud Light, and so if, I really don't. I mean, I got didn't get the impression that she did. But, and so, but there, but there are trans people who do, right? Okay. And, and so if, but, we're, if 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 a company wants to be as as I think Bud Light was clearly going for, I mean, I don't think they just like randomly came up with this thing. I think they were trying to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. Got caught up in the backlash in this political moment. Relatedly, this is not the first time that Bud Light has featured members of the LGBTQ community in its promotional materials, including members of the trans community. But because we are in this moment in time where people are, specifically Republicans, are waging an all-out assault on the trans community, which is a very tiny community in this country, I would remind people listening, uh, this is just being received in a way that it, it historically has not But I think they were trying to be inclusive, and what they ended up being was exclusive. And by that, the comments that she made afterwards when she said... The marketing executive. The marketing executive said, we need to fight against the fratty culture. We're trying to get more modern, be more inclusive. And you totally dismiss a whole swath of people who Mm -hmm. disagree with you. It wasn't a smart response. They could have been very inclusive and sent them out to everybody. That would have been the smart move. This was a very, very... it was abysmally handled because also most major beer companies do reach out to the LGBTQ community. And they could have just said, we all do this. We're inclusive. Again, we're beer for all America. Yeah. But they, I think they handled it ex- totally wrong. Well, they're paying the price. These two marketing executives have now been basically suspended. And they are down. Bud Light is down 17%, it seems, since 16 or 17% since April 1st. And Coors Light and Miller Light are up 17%. So it is just clearly that they everybody registers that this was a mistake. But we'll see how long it lasts. Thank you all for that. Next, Oklahoma's attorney general says a death row inmate should be granted clemency. So why was the clemency board again denying it? The troubling case of Richard Glossop. Next. Oklahoma's pardon board today denied clemency for Richard Glossop. That's a death row inmate who has maintained his innocence for 26 years. He's scheduled to be executed on May 18th, even after the state's attorney general, in an unprecedented move, argued for his clemency to the clemency board. That board deadlocked two to two, but a majority vote is necessary for clemency to be granted. Glossop's attorney reacting to the decision today, quote, we call on Governor Stitt to grant a reprieve of Richard Glossop's scheduled execution on May 18th because the execution of an innocent man would be an irreversible injustice. His attorneys are filing an appeal to the Supreme Court. My panel is back. Elliot, it's even more complicated than I'm making it sound. Yeah. He, not, he not only maintains his innocence, a lot of people on death row maintain their innocence. There is all sorts of new evidence oh. that has come to light since he was convicted that he was not responsible for this murder. It's way beyond just maintaining his innocence. This is really disturbing if you look at this. I mean, this is a, ought to be a prosecutor's worst nightmare to put someone who might be innocent to death. Okay, so indicator number one, the state attorney general is arguing for clemency here and attended the hearing today. And by the way, this is not some democratic or liberal Prosecutor, this is a Republican AG in the state of Oklahoma, and he was supported by a bipartisan group of Oklahoma state legislatures, including more Republicans than Democrats. So let's start with that. There was a 343-page sort of postmortem report done on this case, and it is astonishing. It is disturbing. Evidence was destroyed that should have been preserved after the first trial. The cops basically implanted the concept of the star witness, the only witness, the guy who actually did the killing with a baseball bat. He was the only witness tying Richard Glossop to this. And the cops basically 
when they're interviewing him the first time, are putting in his head, hey, there's only one person you can lay this off on. And they didn't even turn that over to the defense. There are so many problems with this prosecution. And that guy recanted. The star witness who blamed it on Richard Glossop has since recanted, I believe, his testimony. There's every indicator here that this person was wrongly convicted. And if he's put to death, it will just be the worst injustice that our system is capable of. It's so confusing, Alyssa, because so many people are arguing for him, including Kim Kardashian, who I believe we have. We can hear what she had to say today about this. I think that there was hardly any evidence that linked him, if none, you know, to to his case. And I think that I personally don't believe in the death penalty. And I think that everyone deserves at least to have their case fully examined before they're about to be executed. It's just really that simple. And I just don't feel like he's gotten a fair um, chance. As you know, she's taken on some social justice cases. But this conviction is so dubious. Why not just pause it to, in order to get the evidence out there? I have to wonder if Governor Stitt, w- Stitt will end up intervening. I think he's the only person who could. You, could, you would know better than me, Ali, at this point. Um, I'm someone who I do believe in the death penalty in the most extreme cases, only for capital offenses and with a hearty appellate process. And by the way, I think there should be unanimity. When you have something, a 2-2 decision like that, it shouldn't that be you move forward with an irreversible injustice. Um, that should be something that puts it back. And there is the fact that you said it in the open. Opening, he's had three final meals. That borders on, you know, cruel and unusual yeah. to put someone through the mental anguish of going through that. So I think, I mean, I hope that this shines light on it because this needs to be looked into further. Yeah, look, I, I don't believe in the death penalty and, and not for the reason that I think a lot of liberals don't agree. Like, I don't think that the death penalty is inhumane. I disagree with the death penalty because you can never perfect that process. And we are seeing that play out in this latest instance. And so if you can't administer this perfectly, when it comes to something as severe as death, something as final as death, then it just should not be in existence. I also think that it is racist in its application. This is a situation not of racism, but where the evidence is clear that there is at least not a threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt Mm -hmm. for convicting this person of having directed someone else to commit this murder. And I don't know how he was ever, you know, his conviction was vacated. Then somehow he was reconvicted, which is really telling. But the fact that the state attorney general, the Republican attorney general, who in his own words for the first time is appearing before the clemency board and that 45 Republicans in the state legislature are also supporting this it is, is really startling. Lee, is there another way for us to look at this? Well, I think that if this if this moves forward and on May 18th he's executed, I do believe that this is going to be a complete change in how people view the death penalty. Because what we've seen over time is fewer and fewer people support the death penalty. There's still a majority of people, about 55% of Americans support the death penalty. But that's been decreasing over time. And the reason is because people want it done in absolute circumstances. You want it to be rare and you want it to be certain and you want it to be for those extreme crimes. When you look at something like this, when there is... There is new evidence. There is a shadow of a doubt. There is two to two and a vote. They haven't even looked fully at the case. It seems inhumane. It seems unreasonable. And it seems wrong. And then it becomes a much different conversation. So I think if this does go forward, it's going to be really, really, it's going to change the way people view the death penalty. Ellie, can the Supreme Court get involved? Yes, they can. The governor can commute or, or even pardon. And the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, 
They've not done a lot of that. You'll not be surprised to learn. But, but I think there's a couple interesting things happening here. First of all, there are cases that come up that really test the mettle of people who are against the death penalty. Think about a school shooter case. Think about the Parkland shooter case, right, who was recently spared the death penalty. Think about the, Bo- the, Boston, Marathon. the Boston Marathon shooter, right? The Biden administration did not abandon seeking the death penalty mm-hmm. for him. And as Lee says, though, the line keeps moving to where now you're, you're sort of wrapping in cases where there's real doubt. The other thing, I, I do wonder, maybe with a, a bit of optimism, I suppose, that will this change broader views on the death penalty? Because we've been sort of stuck in place for a long time. But here you see really a Republican swell of support coming out of Oklahoma. And look, Kim Kardashian has a lot of attention and, and, you know, God bless her for bringing attention to important causes. And I wonder if this will cause some sort of shift in where where we think as a public as a whole. Well, we've been reporting on it every night. We'll stay on it um, because it's up to the governor now and we'll see what that decision is. Thank you all very much. And be sure to tune in at the top of the hour. Some of our favorite reporters will join me to talk about the scoops that they are working on for tomorrow, including this Mississippi prison escape. But next, what happens when politics and dress codes collide? School officials in two states are finding out how complicated this is. We'll talk about that next. What happens when politics and school dress codes collide? Well, a non-binary student at Nashville Christian School says they were banned from prom for wearing a suit. The student, B. Hayes, posting on Instagram, quote, I wasn't allowed in the doors because I was wearing a suit. I should not have to conform to femininity to attend my senior prom. The school responded, quote, all of our students know from our school handbook that when they do not follow such expectations at school-sponsored events, they may be asked to leave. And then in Michigan, students from the Tri-County Middle School are suing the district after being told to remove their Let's Go Brandon sweatshirts. The mother of the student says... Instead of seeing political sweatshirts as a potential conversation starter between students, officials saw it as an opportunity to discriminate against opinions they didn't like. I'm proud of my sons for standing up for their First Amendment rights. The Tri-County School District had no comment. I'm back with my panel now. Okay, so Mondaire, let's start with the Christian school in Nashville because they say that it's against their dress code for the non-binary student to go in a suit. However, we've pulled their dress code. And it does not, I don't find it that clear, frankly. So here's what it says. All students should choose banquet attire that is appropriate for modesty and consistent with the biblical principles to guide student behavior and the statement of faith of Nashville Christian School. Students who do not adhere to these expectations may be asked to leave the event. Where in the Bible is prom attire spelled out? <laughs> you know, I've, I've read the Bible. I was a Sunday school teacher for a period of my life. It, it's, it's, it's not in there. It's, it's not hitting the way they think it does. Um, I just, I'm sad about both of these situations. I actually disagree in, in, in both cases. You I think, think they should both be allowed to wear what they want? Absolutely. I do. I do. I think it's, a, I think it's an issue of free speech. Um, I think, if look, if the dress code were more explicit and not just applied conveniently in the context of this prom, if both of those conditions were satisfied, I I may have a different analysis. But it's clear that they just didn't like that this non-binary person who presents like a female was wearing a suit to a prom. Furthermore, I find also the 
Michigan dress code to be not explicit enough in terms of the let's go Brandon sweatshirt. So here's what they say. In conflict with state policy, so the dress code you you can't wear if it's in conflict with state policy is a danger to the student's health or safety, is obscene, is disruptive to teaching and or learning environment by calling undue attention to oneself or contains messages or illustrations that are lewd, indecent, vulgar or profane or that advertise any product or service not permitted by law to minors. Let's go. Brandon is none of those things. It's none of those things. I think they, they said it, it was conjuring up swear words or something along those lines. It's, it's ridiculous, frankly. You should be able to wear what you want to wear in these situations. But I do think when I look at these, there's a double standard here. When you look at the, the trans student at the, the Christian school, there's a GoFundMe page so that she can have her own event. There's an outcrying of support for her. Everybody's saying that this is absolutely outrageous. And when you look at the conservative students who wanted to wear Let's Go Brandon students, you don't see that same kind of support. Yes, there's a lawsuit. But there isn't this, like, groundswell of support saying, let's support First Amendment rights and let people speak for themselves and be who they but, but are. But do you see the difference, Lee, between a fashion statement, which um, you could say wearing a suit, you know, wearing pants instead of a dress, and a political statement, which, let's go, Brandon, I don't think it's obscene, but it is a political statement. Do you see, do you make a distinction between they, those two? I, they are different, yes, but they're both expressions, right? And if you should be allowed to express yourself... Within the confines of the rules that are put in front of you, I don't see why one would get great support and one would not. I, I agree that, that, that both should be permissible. I would just say, I'm sure, on, in right-wing media right now, that there is a ton of support for the Let's Go Brandon kid. And we're just not seeing it in this moment. And maybe it's not as loud. But I, I think there are probably GoFundMes, if not at least one in existence. I think people are rallying behind this person. And maybe he'll be encouraged to, to run for office one day because of his bravery in wearing this to high school. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. What do you guys think? I was just going to say, for the Nashville school, like, newsflash women wear pants. That's, I mean, just a, a fact of and the matter. And women are allowed to wear pants at this school, which is another that's, reason why it's sort of confusing. That's what I was curious about, yes. if the dress code permits to yes, wear pants. We were pants. just talking about the White House Correspondence Center. If I was fashionable enough, I would have thought about wearing suit wear. That's a very common thing for women to do. Um, so that's absurd. On the second, I would agree with Lee. It's a free speech issue. I don't love it. We know it comes from kind of a crass derogatory term toward the president. But I honestly think, A, it's a First Amendment right to do it. And also, I like high school kids getting engaged in politics. I think it's a good thing that they care. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, both school administrators need to just take a breath, <laughs> relax. I mean, this is an expression issue. Look, we have an election coming up. If you're not going to allow a Let's Go Brandon shirt, you can't allow a Biden 2024 yeah. shirt or a Trump 2024 shirt. And I, I think, generally speaking, we would want students engaging in that sort of political discourse, even if it's a wee bit crass or, as Lee said, secondhand alludes to something profane. On the prom, let the kids do what they want. I mean, there is no harm in this whatsoever. Let them dress however they want. It's absurd. It's 2023. If someone wants to wear a suit, as long as the clothing is not physically dangerous or the person's not nude, Go for it and have fun. <laughs> I'll tell you who cut quite a swath at their prom, Ellie Hunter. <laughs> I believe we have a photo that Uh-oh. proves Uh-oh. what Ellie was wearing. At it. Look okay. at oh, this. Wow. So, <laughs> I, I offered this up to your producers as, as a public service announcement. Because kids, while you should dress where you want, understand that there will be consequences for this. And what, what, what's what, bad about well, this? what I'm wearing here is what's known as, the, to give a plug for a dead company, a Jordan Jammer brand tux. <laughs> This, this is 1993. That's as in Michael Jordan and Jammer as in someone who dunks a basketball. And you can't quite see it there, but the pants went up to my belly button and the jacket ended. <laughs> I, I also can't point. see your date. Oh, no, that's on be, purpose. There's no way I'm going to let, I'm, there's no way I'm going to expose Okay, do we have any other head of hair? Do we have any, yeah, the hair's <laughs> impressive, Ellie, but it's still very, okay, Alyssa? 
Let's see it. I don't even know what this is. I can't see this close enough. I think I have cornrows, which in (laughs) retrospect, J-Lo was huge in that era. It's probably. That is amazing. We oh, have to see the, the limos were a thing. And, and I mean, you have the full stretch white is limo. That, is that your date or is that I think that it that is. I think that's Joey Miller, my date. <laughs> are, are, you, are you sure you're not a Joey Miller? Miller? <laughs> <laughs> but Joey's also driving the limo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's awesome. Um, thank you for sharing that. We'll look forward to seeing yours on social media somehow. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, Tucker Carlson is speaking out tonight after being fired from Fox. We'll bring you that right after this. Tucker Carlson speaking out tonight after his abrupt firing from Fox, though he does not address his firing in the short rambling video that he posted online. One of the first things you realize when you step outside the noise for a few days is how many genuinely nice people there are in this country, kind and decent people, people who really care about what's true, and a bunch of hilarious people also, a lot of those. It's gotta be the majority of the population, even now. So that's heartening. The other thing you notice when you take a little time off is how unbelievably stupid most of the debates you see on television are. They're completely irrelevant. They mean nothing. In five years, we won't even remember that we had them. Trust me, as someone who's participated. And yet at the same time, and this is the amazing thing, the undeniably big topics, the ones that will define our future, get virtually no discussion at all. I'm back with Alyssa Farah, Griffin at Mondaire Jones. Alyssa? There's such a tremendous lack of self-awareness in this video. I, I, I watched it actually several times. Tucker Carlson is the person that made me forget people are kind. He's the person, if you tuned in, you'd forget that most people are decent, most don't hate their neighbor, most aren't afraid of their neighbor. And he talks about the big stories that the media isn't covering. His show tried to rewrite history while the other networks are covering actual real news. I'm, it is welcome to have him off the airwaves. I am concerned, I was concerned about the fact that he was being played on military basis. He was radicalizing people. Some of the things he espoused, particularly with regard to the war in Ukraine, were very, very dangerous. But just the tremendous lack of self-awareness is so stunning. Mondar? I mean, I think it's part of, a, part of his, his persona, right? I mean, he knows that he has lied repeatedly about things. And we have evidence of that now in the Dominion discovery. And so I think this is about preserving, you know, his persona for whatever he does next, whether it's, you know, starting his own show or network or podcast, I guess, or maybe even running for president or for the United States Senate. Um, but this guy continues to not learn from his mistakes and I think, frankly, has been given no incentive, especially as it's been reported that he's going to get the remainder of the $20 million annual contract that he's... Salary, yeah. I think that he projects a lot, but I think that it is a shame. If what he just said was true, I think it's a shame that he had to come off the air for four days to realize that people in the country are genuinely kind and hilarious and wonderful. That's a shame. It's clearly a man who exists in an echo chamber. Um, And and I think... Of his own creation. Of his own creation. And he did say something that stood out to me. He's like, no one's going to remember the debates we're having on air and TV. No one forgets when Jon Stewart and he got into it on Hardball. I'm sorry, that will live on for eternity. Um, Substantive points like that do last. And that is going to follow him. And he's going to be remembered by this, being fired from all three cables. 
I mean, and he also was the person who was ginning up the irrelevant debates. Of course. They, I mean, you know, he, he couldn't help but mention demographic change as, as, as the, the top, as one of the several topics that he thinks deserve, you know, elevation in our discourse. Mm-hmm. But by demographic change, what he's talking about is white replacement theory, which has been this debunked theory that people have written about as having been debunked, but that he continued to push in prime time. So he is, you know, really someone who continues not to be serious about telling the truth and who is himself pushing super irrelevant, debunked information to the public. That's very dangerous. Well, it's been a fascinating week. We'll see um, what comes of it next and where he pops up. Thank you both very much. Coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories they're working on for tomorrow. They're going to share their scoops with us next. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. So here with me is Priscilla Alvarez, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, Ryan Young and Kara Scannell. Great to have you guys tonight. Really looking forward to hearing about the stories that you are working on. So the feud between Disney and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is heating up. Today, Disney launched a lawsuit against DeSantis and his hand-picked oversight board after they voted to nullify Disney's special taxing district. Disney alleges, quote, a targeted campaign of government retaliation orchestrated at every step by Governor DeSantis as punishment for Disney's protected speech now threatens Disney's business operations, jeopardizes its economic future in the region, and violates its constitutional rights. Vanessa Yurkiewicz is on this story. So, Vanessa, this is a plot twist because we've ju- up until now, it's been DeSantis against Disney, but now Disney's firing back. So what happens next? This is like round 25 of this saga between Disney and DeSantis. And really, this is going to be a long, drawn-out legal battle between essentially DeSantis and the state of Florida and Disney. Disney suing DeSantis and the newly appointed board members after he ousted the old board members that were basically talking to Disney about how they would continue to work with this huge corporation. But what we're seeing now is this fight playing out in real time. This all happened essentially in the same moments. You have this board appointed by DeSantis coming in to try to undo a lot of what Disney has done with the previous board. And then at that same time, boom, you have this lawsuit drop from Disney, essentially saying, DeSantis, everything you're trying to do is completely unconstitutional and is completely politically driven. And how is he responding? DeSantis is basically saying, Disney, you don't get any special treatment here in Florida. You're just like every other business. And DeSantis essentially threatening to potentially raise taxes on Disney. But that has a ripple effect. Not only would taxes go up on Disney, but other landowners that are protected under this district. So DeSantis really putting his foot down, but could basically cause some harm along the way. That's what I was wondering. Is this good for Florida? Don't Floridians like having Disney in their backyard? I think so, because if it wasn't for Disney, Orlando would essentially be a big swamp. I mean, Disney Disney is what basically put Orlando on the map in the 1960s. It draws in so many visitors. It draws in billions of dollars in revenue. Many Floridians love Disney exactly for that reason, But a lot of Floridians also like that DeSantis is taking a stand on basically what he thinks is an overstep of Disney, basically going into the political sphere. Their wokeness. Their wokeness, essentially over the fact that Disney came out and said that they do not support 
Florida's don't say gay bill. And that's what kind of started this all a year ago. And we've been talking this week about the fact that Republicans weren't necessarily all on board with DeSantis going up against Disney. So an escalation like this also adds more of a wrinkle for DeSantis when it comes to coalescing his own party members to support him for a potential candidacy. But I will also say when I saw this news, the first thing that came to mind was the flights that DeSantis orchestrated of migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. That many critics called a political stunt as he tried to get immigration at the forefront and criticize uh, President Joe Biden. And it also ended up in a lawsuit. And who won that one? The judge ended up dismissing the lawsuit because uh, the, the... the governor essentially added funds through the state legislator to continue to do these types of things. So it sort of made the point moot. But it was a lawsuit all the same for something that he was going after. Meanwhile, um, presidential candidate Nikki Haley seized on this today. So what did she say? Well, what we've been hearing, right? Like the Disney and this isn't this isn't the Republican stance, right? This is a Republican going after business, getting involved in business. This is not what we normally she, see. She capitalized on what DeSantis has been doing. She basically is saying, hey, if you don't want Disney, we'll take I think Disney. We might have her yeah, let's bite. listen to what she yeah. said. South Carolina was a very anti-woke state. It still is. And if Disney would like to move their hundreds of thousands of jobs to South Carolina and bring the billions of dollars with them, I'll let them know. I'll be happy to meet them in South Carolina. And essentially, she's pointing out just how lucrative Disney is to the state of Florida and any state that would have a part of Disney. And obviously, DeSantis is potentially revving up for an announcement to run for president. Nikki Haley, he'll obviously be up against. Same with Donald Trump. Donald Trump, by the way, is actually more on Nikki Haley's side than Ron DeSantis' side. He's saying that what DeSantis is doing is anti-business, and that's actually not good for the state of Florida and, you know, the president now living in the state of Florida. I mean, I grew up in Florida, so when you think about someone trying to go after Disney, you're like, wait, that's like the 800-pound gorilla, right? They make a lot of money. People from all around the world want to come to Florida to go to Disney. It's oh, yeah. a dream. Get married there. Yeah, absolutely. I, Ron DeSantis wow. got, got married, married there. there. <laughs> I had a friend get engaged there, right? That's, that's what you, you want to do. The other side of this, though, is, and you have to start talking about this, there's this idea that people like seeing DeSantis fight. And so there's another part of people who are like, oh, he's taking these people on. He's taking this wokeness on. He's attacking it from the front. But at the same time, you look at all the jobs, you look at the impact that Disney has on Florida economy. I mean, that's that seems like a big fight to take on. Absolutely. And can we imagine them actually? Is Disney capable of leaving Florida and going to South Carolina? Can they up and move that entire operation? I mean, that is a moving company's dream, I'm sure. <laughs> but they employ, Disney employs 75,000 people. They pay over a billion dollars in taxes every single year. And their 10-year plan is an additional 13,000 people of employees and billions of more dollars in revenue that they plan to bring into the state. So it is certainly not going to be easy to get Disney to leave. I don't think that's what anybody wants, but it's certainly also not going to be easy for them to sort of lay down and say, we're not going to fight for what we believe in both on a cultural level, but also on the level of basically not having to answer to anyone but Disney. But isn't Disney like the auto industry? Like we can think about Disney itself, but it's everything around Disney. So you got every hotel, you got every shop, you got every outlet, 
You got the airport. That's all set up for you to come have a good time at Disney. The entire platform is. And it's one of the fastest growing places in the state of Florida. So what would you do if that all of a sudden was a vacuum? That's why, Kara, it confuses me that Ron DeSantis is picking this fight because it's so lucrative for Florida. I mean, I have never been to Disney. Don't yeah. tell anyone. <laughs> what? <laughs> but I'm, like, also, he's talking about putting possibly a prison yeah. next door. So you know, really seems to like just want to drop some controversy here, too. Yeah. And that's part of his play, that he feels like now he has some power over Disney and he wants to put a a prison in. He wants to raise taxes on things that Disney essentially pays for to support the entire infrastructure. He is getting a little bit of power as he's moved to change over this board to basically install people that he knows very well that are lawyers. But this fight from Disney, they have so much firepower, so much financial power behind them to step up against the state that, you know, it could go Disney's way. But all that said, should they be in this tax-exempt status or whatever they are? I mean, is if this is, if, he, if he's going to change how they, I guess, uh, pay their taxes to the state, mm-hmm. is, are people interested, are, are, are Floridians supportive of that? I think Floridians are supportive of not having to pay more taxes themselves. <laughs> so, so essentially, though, if he's going to make it harder for Disney to operate there, I don't know, could that have a ripple effect on, on Floridians? Floridians, as Ryan was saying, they love Disney. Even if they don't go every week, every weekend, they love having it in their backyard. It is such an, such an institution to the state. It is synonymous with the state. I think that most people would say they support Disney, but also maybe to your point, some people support what DeSantis is doing, taking on a big corporation. Maybe we flip that question. What would every other state in the union do to get Disney? Mm -hmm. Anything. (laughs) (laughs) What tax break would they provide? So so it's it's interesting as we watch uh, so many big businesses uh, open a chip plant or open a manufacturing place and won't have the success of a Disney. Like, because everybody wants to have a piece of that Disney. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. You think about the Marvel properties, you think about all that. So when you put all that together, it's not bad. That makes sense. Um, all right. Thank you all very much for that. Now we need to talk about something that's happening right now. Police are on the trail of three fugitives who've escaped from a Mississippi jail over the weekend. A fourth one has been identified after being killed. He was found in a burned home after a gun battle with police. So Ryan Young has all the details on this manhunt. Next. Yes, exactly. There are dramatic developments tonight in the manhunt for four prison escapees in Mississippi. Authorities say that Dylan Arrington, Casey Grayson, Corey Harrison and Jerry Raines, they're on your screens right now. Take a good look at them. They escaped from the Raymond Detention Center late Saturday night. One of the four men is dead after a fire broke out in a home where he was allegedly shooting at police. Ryan is on this story. Okay, do police have any leads on where they think these guys are? I mean, that's really the big question tonight. That's why putting those photos up on the screen is a big deal, right? Because there's an active manhunt, even as we're talking right now. Yes, and let me just say, as somebody who's worked in America's Most who worked in America's Most Wanted for five years, it works. It, the viewers find people. If you see anybody matching this, just call 911. You don't need to know the number in Mississippi. You can just call 911, and they will connect you if you know where those guys are. And that's important to say, because when you talk to law enforcement, we are the force multiplier for them. It's all the eyes and ears. You see someone, um, when they report a stolen vehicle or something, that's what helps move them forward. But when you think about this case and how people have already been impacted by the public, the one guy that you talked about, Dylan Arrington, the one who's dead right now, 
He's actually somebody, according to police, who, when he stole someone's motorcycle, he crashed the motorcycle. A reverend went over to help him, and he shot and killed that reverend, oh, no. according to police. It's awful. And then he ended up in a shootout with police, shot a deputy, and that's who they found in a burning home later today. So when you see the pieces of all this, and you know that three others are still in the loose, there's so many questions, not only about how did they escape, why did it take so long before America found out they were still in the run? This almost plays out like a movie. Um, they escaped from inside that facility by going through the roof. They stole a public utility vehicle and crashed it through a fence. And then the men have all split up now. So you have three on the run. They believe three of them could be in Texas. And, of course, this other guy who's already been killed. But there's so many questions now about just how long it took the sheriff's deputies to figure out. Um, the sheriff's department even said themselves, look, they take this on for themselves. They made a big mistake. In fact, take a listen to the sheriff and what he said a little earlier today. Remember, like I said, D3, where these individuals escaped, this is one of the pods that had been recently renovated. The door is locked in this particular pod. Uh, the pod is secure. The breach that they created was located within a cell. So he was in a secure area. <laughs> right, so that's that's part of the investigation now. So, like, you think once you close those doors, and we've, we've all covered jails before, once those doors close, you think, oh, they're not going to get out. What is this, Shawshank Redemption? They're, like, calling <laughs> themselves out. Well, apparently that's what they did. And they all left at different times, and then apparently they were able to get in that car and take off. The weird thing about this, Jerry Raines actually escaped from the same facility in 2021. Hmm. So there are issues here that are baked in that we all have to sort of talk about. I was just because, about to ask, what do we know about this facility and also this department? Is it a small department? Are, you know, yeah. were there enough people to that is monitor? A, that is a great question. And today the sheriff even said they're 50 deputies short. Yeah, and There's what, a shortage of prison workers. And we're starting to see that across the country, not only in prisons, but in law enforcement in general. There is not there's a massive amount of retirements that are going on, especially after COVID, especially in law enforcement. We see this in other industries, but people are not signing up for these jobs like they used to. I mean, the economy has something to do with it because you're not getting paid as much. And you're also dealing with people who sometimes are mentally ill. And there's a lot of responsibilities at these at these facilities. But when you add all that together, we're in a particular time in this country where everyone wants to feel safe. So you almost feel like you have to pay law enforcement more if you want some of these services. But at, at this point, no one's going to talk about that because you got three guys who are still on the loose, who may be in Texas, who may be on the run, and maybe tonight someone looks up and sees that screen. But at the same time, this has been since Saturday. No, this is crazy because this is the upshot of not having enough deputies. Like sometimes we just hear, oh, there are 58 deputies down, but you don't know what the real life consequence is. But, but go ahead, Kara. Well, I was saying, so three of these guys are in their 20s. One is in his 50s. Do we know anything about the relationship between them? Or And, and, that's, and that's what's fascinating. Of course, when I watched the news conference today, you wondered, it, are they pod mates? Were they hanging out? Did one of them have the plan? You got to think about the guy who's 51. He's escaped before. Did he go to them and say, hey, I got you. I know how to get out of here. There's a weakness. And maybe he figured that part out. And maybe he's the one guy who was able to guide everyone out. Then you have the one who's obviously a little more violent. He goes on his own spree after this. And you think about a reverend stopping to help a man who crashed a motorcycle and ends up getting shot and killed. I mean, almost on that, it's almost a full stop because you understand the pain in terms of everybody who's dealing with it. He was doing the right thing. Yeah. And then he loses It's awful. Life. But do they do police think that the other three are armed? That's a great question. I think at this point, it's like what you said earlier. If you see them, you have to call 911. Because if you're willing to do an escape, 
You know your picture is going to be on television. If you're in Texas, I mean, I think the question we asked before, before we went to break, are they trying to head to Mexico? You know, yeah. and when you think about the shortages on the border, which you cover all the time, are they trying to get to a place where they can kind of escape across the border? I mean, these are all questions. You don't think they really played this out all the way. But if you're already heading toward Texas, what is your next step? What is what are they what is law enforcement telling people to do? I mean, if you see them, obviously call the authorities. But there are people on there are these three gentlemen on the loose right now. They could be armed. Are they saying lock your doors, stay inside? I mean, one of them entered a home. I yeah. mean, it's it's pretty scary if you if you're just a home alone or it's dark. It's dark right now in many parts of the country. Well, you know, you think about all this. I, when I covered Casey White in Alabama, when he made the escape with the help of someone from inside the jail, it was interesting to watch how when they figured out certain blocks of where they were, they would put out small bursts of like, "Hey, lock your doors, be on the lookout for." It. But one of the things about this is this group is if they're still together, they're such a sort of mis patch of guys. Maybe you notice something weird. I've covered stories before where my producer and I have fit the description of people they were looking for and gotten pulled over, which is always a funny story. Is, is that right? Yeah, it's happened before. But, so the, but, you've been pulled over because you look it, like a fugitive. It's, it's, it's happened. It's happened. And then what it's happens? Happened. And so no, what, you, you show the press pass and you just keep it moving. But but at the same time, you understand if you, if you look, you got a, one black guy, you got two white guys, or you see three guys in a car, they're probably going to get pulled over tonight, right? So it all makes sense. But then you think about it. They don't have credit cards, so you can't do the digital tracking like you do, Right. The last car they were seen in, maybe it's already been dumped and they moved to another one. And then you saw the gas station picture that they had at one point of one of the guys at a convenience store. So it's that kind of thing where someone's going to say, hey, I saw this guy here and you can go back and look. And isn't part of the question, too, do they have connections to the outside? Is there someone who is assisting them? I'm sure these are part of the questions that law enforcement... Here's how it normally works, Ryan, as I'm sure you know. They'll split up. The 21-year-olds will go home immediately to their connections and their family members. They'll immediately be arrested, like, tomorrow. I mean, they're not... Often these guys, the young ones at least, are not long for the outside world. And, and, and you're right in that sense. But what, what is scary about it is we now have a pattern where people seem desperate. And did they find out that their friends already been killed in the shootout? Mm-hmm. And do they now feel the pressure to do more to stay out there? So I, I'm always considering the, like, what's the motive behind the crime sometimes? And so these other three guys might be like, man, we didn't sign up for that part of it, right? Sure. Um, clearly, Arrington went on his own way. Um, but I, but I, what I also wonder about is how much pressure is on law enforcement, especially in that small community, because now you have an entire a, a detention facility that people are probably like, all right, you're 50 deputies short, and you have other people who are in there. So what happens next? Yeah. Um, all right, obviously we'll stay on this, and everybody just... Uh, make sure you call your local law enforcement if you know any of those guys. Okay, up next. E. Jean Carroll, back on the witness stand tomorrow in her battery and defamation trial against Donald Trump after a first day of very emotional testimony. So Kara's going to fill us in. An emotional day in a New York courtroom where E. Jean Carroll took the stand in her lawsuit against former President Trump. She testified, quote, I'm here because Donald Trump raped me, and when I wrote about it, he said he didn't. It didn't happen. He lied and shattered my reputation, and I'm here to try and get my life back. CNN's Kara Scannell was at the courthouse and is here to fill us in. So, okay, Kara, so tell us um, the headlines from today and what happens next. Right. I mean, so in in this case, I mean, E. Jean Carroll was on the stand for most of the day today. And, you know, this is her 
her lawsuit against the former president. So she testified in emotional testimony at times, you know, saying that, you know, actually like describing the scene, taking the jury into this moment. She said it. she believed it was a Thursday night in the spring of 1996. She couldn't pinpoint it any sooner than that. But she said she had gone to Bergdorf Goodman's New York department store after work, was leaving just as Donald Trump, who was then, you know, a fixture of the tabloids, 90s New York City, was coming in. And she said he said to her, hey, you're that advice columnist. And she said, hey, you're that real estate tycoon. He was like, come with me. I need to get a gift for a friend. So they looked at handbags. They looked at hats. Then she said they took the escalator up to the sixth floor. That's where the lingerie was. She kept thinking, this is going to be a great story to tell my friends. Here I run into Donald Trump and we're going shopping. And But then she said, this is when things turned violent. That, you know, they were joking over a piece of lingerie. You try it on. No, you try it on. And then they ended up in the dressing room. This is when she, her allegation that Trump shoved her up against the wall hard enough that her head hit the wall. He closed the doors, which automatically locked. He pulled down her tights and he raped her. And then she said from there, she you know, was able to get her knee up and push him off, uh, left the, the department store, called a friend immediately. And that friend is also going to testify. And then she also spoke to another friend. You know, and she was saying, you know, the, the problem here uh, for her was that she has not been able to have a romantic relationship since because she says it was the sense of flirting with someone and having it turn violent, and she's not been able to replicate that. Uh, you know, she also said then when Trump came out and denied this, when she wrote her book and came public with the story, um, he denied it. He said she was a liar, that she made it up, and she said she received, you know, nasty emails. She goes fired from her job as a columnist at Elle, and she's saying that these were the, the ramifications of this. Now, you know, she's on the stand again tomorrow. She has a little bit more direct testimony from her lawyer, but then it's going to be cross-examination by Trump's team. And out of the gate in opening statements, they said this never happened, full stop. And they've said they're going to make their case through the plaintiff's witnesses. So they're going to spend a lot of time on cross-examination of Carol. They're going to try to poke holes in this. Where's the evidence? It's a he said, she said. There are no eyewitnesses. Well, this is what point, they're going to work on. Tomorrow. I mean, what does she need to prove? So this is a defamation and battery case. So she, does she need to prove that she was raped in order to prove defamation? Or does she just need to prove that he defamed her and it hurt her reputation? So this is what's so interesting. On the battery charge, the judge explained this to, to the jury just after he swore them in to kind of set them up so they could absorb and hear the evidence in this case. And he said what battery is in a civil context is unjustified touching without the consent of another person that a reasonable person would find offensive. And he said that in this civil context, it doesn't discriminate between, uh, you know, violence of the touch. So if, if they find that he shoved her up against the dressing room wall, that could be enough. It doesn't have to be rape. So... That leaves, a, you know, a big, big window here for the jury to look at. And then on defamation, you know, it's more complicated, but he told them he's going to simply, like, just in the outset, you know, this is some, saying something that you know is false to harm someone's reputation. So that's the parameters of what they're going to be looking at here. And if this is a civil case, so again, it's the preponderance of evidence. It's not the same standard as a criminal case. So it's really just like 51%. There are nine jurors, six men, three women. Uh, you know, and we'll see how they take in all this evidence. Are we going to hear from Trump at all on this case or is or is that not happening? Well, so he sat for a video deposition in October. And so, you know, they've already said they're going to play portions of that. But this has been a looming question. And the judge is pressing Trump's attorney. He said he needs to know by this week if Trump is going to come into court either to testify or just to observe 
the trial. He's on trial, and there's an empty seat in the courtroom right now because he's not there. He's not required to be there. But, you know, the judge is also saying, look, this is a security concern. We've got extra marshals here. We've got a a magnetometer before anyone can come into the courtroom just in case the former president shows up. This is the second time he would have to come to New York City to to testify. I mean, to, to, yeah, second time in, like, Two weeks. I was when was the last time I was outside the AG's office. Yeah, hours. for hours and hours. This is why you can't go to Disney World. <laughs> this is why I don't, I don't get to go to Disney constantly World. reporting. <laughs> um, and what does um, Eugene want? What does she get if she wins? So she is suing for a retraction of a statement that he made in October, where you know he said this was a hoax. These allegations that you know she made this up, suggesting that she did it to boost sales of her book, and then he, you know he said repeatedly, "She's not my type." Um, she also wants compensatory and punitive damages. She hasn't put a firm number on that. That would be a question then for the jury. It's been so many decades since this incident happened. How is that playing into this case? I mean, how do you try a case that happened so long ago? Yeah, so I mean, such a high profile person, the former president of the United States. It happened so long ago, and she only became went public with it in 2019. So, you know, that's a big gap here. There's not the physical evidence. There's no credit card receipts. There's no surveillance video. There's no phone records that anyone has suggested they're going to enter into evidence here. So it's really going to be based on Carol, her credibility, the two friends that she talked to who are going to be called to testify. And this is what I think is really interesting. The judge has allowed two other women who were not friends with Carol, did not know Carol, but came forward in 2016 when, you know, some two dozen women had come forward with allegations of assault by Trump. So two women, a former uh, reporter for People magazine who said that she went to interview Trump on the one year anniversary of his marriage to Melania and that he forcibly kissed her. And then another woman who said in 79 she was sitting in a first class um, seat next to Trump and that he groped her. So both of those women are allowed to come in. And the way that Eugene Carroll's attorneys presented this in opening statements is they said this was one man, this was one pattern and three women that he, you know, in a semi-public place, groped them, grabbed them, assaulted them. And then when they went public about it, said they were too ugly for me to assault. So they laid this out, you know, pretty firmly. Of course, that's opening statements. But then this is where Trump's attorneys are going to attack these stories. I think a big question a lot of people are going to have is why aren't we going to see this on television? Because everyone expects to see everything now laid out on television. So I know you know why, but I mean... Can we just explain why? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the federal court system. Federal courts don't allow cameras in the courtroom. You know, there are some very unique circumstances where they sometimes do it. But, you know, I I cover the Southern District of New York all the time. They just don't allow it. So the only windows into this are through the reporters that are there. And I mean, I find it such a privilege to go and cover courts and trials. It's, you know, it's history in the making and it's drama you could never anticipate. And then the the court sketch artists that give you that, you know, that quick image of the, the scene inside the room. I mean, we're all guilty of this now. We listen to people's voices when they testify and we start trying to glean whether or not we believe them. And that's, we lose that by yeah. not seeing it. Absolutely. I'm all for cameras in the courtroom, for sure. So, Kara, also tell us about other developments in the special counsel, the other, another investigation into Donald Trump. Yeah, the Jack Smith investigation led by the special counsel. Uh, so he has been in contact with, you may remember this former Fox producer, Abby Grossman. She had uh, was fired from Fox after she sued them. Uh, this all came out as part of the Dominion lawsuit. She worked for Maria Bartiromo and then Tucker Carlson. Right. And so, you know, Fox is sued by Dominion. They had 
had given they had, there had been depositions of a number of producers and some of these these anchors and hosts themselves. So Abby Grossman, who worked for those two, uh, was deposed. Then, in the middle of this process, as they were heading into trial, she filed a lawsuit saying that. They, that Fox had, you know, pushed her testimony in one direction. Now, Fox has denied this in, completely. But since then, you know, she has gone public with some audio, um, you know, including conversations that Maria Bartiromo had with Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, two guests that had been on that were pushing that the election was stolen, that there was potential fraud at Dominion. Neither of those things were true. Uh, but she came forward with that. Very interestingly, I mean, Jack Smith has said to her lawyer, we want to hear your tapes. So her lawyer was on CNN, and so they have 90 audio tapes that they're trying to work with Jack Smith. They don't, he doesn't even know what's on all of them, but they're trying to work with a special counsel and work it out through some kind of subpoena uh, for her to turn these tapes because over. Because Jack Smith is, is looking at it to see if Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell said something about January 6th. This is about... About the planning for January 6th, he thinks? The question that he's looking at is the interference and the transfer of power, right? So Giuliani and Sidney Powell, they were behind a number of these lawsuits. But I think the question here is, what were they saying publicly and arguing, and what were they saying privately? So potentially, what were they even saying to the former president? Because the question is, what did he know? What was his intent when he was doing this? And one rationalization people have said is, well, he might have really believed his attorneys because Rudy Giuliani was a U.S. attorney in New York. You know, he was a very substantial um, lawyer. So if Trump really believed them, that is one thing, and that's a good defense for him. But if they knew and were having conversations that this wasn't true, that's a tougher defense for him. Do you think that they were trying to get their hands on this tape before the Dominion lawsuit played out? Or do you think Dominion kind of opened things up for them to go in and say, hey, I want that. I want to hear that. I want to hear that, knowing what was in this lawsuit? I mean, I can't imagine they would know that these tapes even existed before she went public with it. I mean, the fascinating thing about this is the special counsel has been moving at a rapid clip. They've been, you know, conducting a lot of interviews, uh, subpoenaing a lot of records. But you also, this was such a massive... Uh, you know, it's, it's the election. It touches so many different corners. I, you know, there's things that you can't even anticipate. But what's so interesting to me is how swiftly they moved to try to get these tapes because her attorney saying that they heard from them almost immediately after these tapes became public. So definitely on the case here and, and moving quickly. Kara, thank you very much for all of that information. Uh, meanwhile, President Biden is addressing a big concern of a lot of voters, including Democrats. They have this concern as he relaunches his election campaign. And that, of course, is his age. So Priscilla has that when we come back. President Biden addressing concerns about his age as he kicks off his re-election campaign. And Priscilla has new reporting for us. Okay, so today, President Biden answered the question about his age, which he keeps getting, Differently, a little differently than he has been. That's right. And this was actually a critical moment because it's his first substantial response to this question. And he said that he took a hard look at it himself. So I think we have the sound and we should play that. You've said questions about your age are legitimate. And your response is always, just watch me. But the country is watching. And recent polling shows that 70% of Americans, including a majority of Democrats, believe you shouldn't run again. What do you say to them? What do you say to those Americans who are watching and aren't convinced? With regard to age, uh, 
I can't even say, I guess how old I am, I can't even say the number. It doesn't, it doesn't register with me. And, uh, but the only thing I can say is that um, one of the things that people are going to find out, they're going to see a race, and they're going to judge whether or not I have it or don't have it. I respect them taking a hard look at it. I take a hard look at it as well. I took a hard look at it before I decided to run. You know, and the other part of that that was interesting later on is he was asked, would you still have run if it wasn't against the former president, Donald Trump? And he said that he would have. Now, of course, we've been talking about this week how uh, voters are concerned about how old he is. We shouldn't forget that Trump himself is in his late 70s. But I've been reading uh, some polls and surveys as we've considered this question over and over. And what I have found is that voters, they have concerns about age, but they still vote for those candidates. So, I mean, think about, for example, Congress, where we have many, many members, and a lot of them are older. People put them in that position of power. And then there's also been polling to show that voters when they think about this question, don't really know what the cap is, right? You know, the numbers that get thrown out are 50s, maybe a max of 70. And yet, when you look at the Senate, the House, and now the president, which is, yes, another position, a very important position of power, uh, we have folks who are older. Uh, So anyway, so Biden addressing this today, he's going to keep getting this question. The White House framing has always been People questioned him in 2020. Look where he is now. We're probably going to hear more of that from him as he goes on these trips. But it is a busy few weeks ahead for the president where he's going to be out front quite a bit domestically and foreign. Yeah, I mean, one of the things he talks about is having the stamina for the job and the campaign, which requires an incredible amount of endurance and stamina. And, you know, if he can do it, he says, watch him. But I think it's interesting. It depends upon how old you are how old you think the president (laughs) should be. And in fact, CNN's K-File dug up a 29-year-old Joe Biden, who at that time thought that there was an expiration date for politicians. So let's, let's get in the time machine and look at that. Oh, we don't have sound of that? Let me see if I could... Oh, we don't have any sound of that. I think I he was walk criticizing you his, I'll, I'll his, walk you, I'll his walk you candidate. Candidate. So let's, let's go back to 1972. Uh, Biden was 29 years old. He was a local uh, Delaware councilman, and he was running against a Republican senator, Cale Boggs, 63 years old. And he put it simply in talking. He said that he lost the old twinkle in his eyes. Those were Biden's words. And you know, K-File, as he looked into this, re- noticed that it was really prominent the way that Biden was going after uh, his opponent's age in this race. Who he, was just 63. Who was just 63. And in the end, Biden won that race. But even when he won, it was about, the headlines were about defeating the old. I mean, it was just a really prominent moment. But to your point, he was 29, right? We look at age differently now. The way that we hear Biden talk about his age when he gets asked by reporters is, look at my experience and look at what that brings to the table. So, uh, but it it was interesting that, of course, our colleague would find (laughs) that clip as he does. He finds in the archives. Um, But how differently 29-year-olds feel. I'm sure he he looks back and he's like, oh, I was a little naive then, wasn't I? Because now he's getting all these questions about it. He is. And look, it's interesting because we're going to, we have so many months ahead going into November of 2024. And Republicans are going to mention this, but 
they are really going to focus on the issues. Because I went back again and looked at that RNC video, the one we talked about last night with AI, and they go after the issues. They go after the economy, crime, the border, and they tick through all of those to say that President Biden is not someone who Americans would want for a second term. So are we going to keep hearing about this from voters? Probably, right? Especially as he is out um, uh, on these different trips. But and we're going to hear from Republicans, but the the primary uh, candidate for them is also in his late 70s. So is age really going to play in that? I don't know. Yeah, great point. We're going to be hearing yeah. from voters the most, but really what we're seeing when it comes to attacks is the issues. Okay, friends, thank you very much for all of that. Up next, we have On the Lookout. Our reporters are going to tell us what stories they are looking out for on the horizon. We'll be right back. We're back with our fabulous panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Priscilla, you. So I have my eyes on the Hill for a different reason. That's not the debt ceiling. Uh, Julie Sue, she's the acting labor secretary. She was the deputy, and she's been filling and helming the department ever since Marty Walsh stepped down. Her nomination passed through Senate committee today, but now the big the big challenge is, will she get passed in the Senate? The reason this is important is, of course, because the White House is going to want to have their labor secretary confirmed, but she was narrowly confirmed when she went into the deputy role. Republicans have voted against her, and now they're trying to coalesce Democrats to get on board, and the White House has been leading high-level efforts to get those votes to happen. This is the highest-ranking official, and if she does not, uh, get confirmed, it would be quite a failure for the administration, which has wanted to have every post confirmed at the cabinet at the cabinet level. Okay, we will look out for that. Thank you. Okay, Vanessa, I am keeping an eye on the looming writers' strike that could happen May second. This is the Writers Guilds of America is negotiating with big studios, and a strike could happen May second if they don't come up with a new contract. So that means no late night TV. No SNL, all your favorite movies and TV shows paused. What would that mean? We just see reruns? Uh, Potentially, or sometimes we've seen in the past just late night hosts kind of going on the fly and making it up as they go along. But this could have severe economic impacts if it does happen, if there is a strike. Billions of dollars in losses. Ultimately, the last strike was in 2007. $2 $2 billion in economic losses lasted 100 days. We're not there yet. The two sides are still talking. But worst case scenario is May 2nd, we see a bunch of writers around the city, California, on strike. Okay, got it. Thank you for that. Ryan. Look, a lot of serious stories over there. I'm focused on the NBA. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get away from this job thing every now and then. So, look, the Miami Heat are playing well. NBA, we got TNT, we got our folks. Charles is joining us. Yeah. I love the idea of just watching basketball during the time of year. But I, I said that because I feel like a lot of people haven't taken the mental breaks they need to take. So that is my way to escape the world that we're love in it. right now. Yes, and why that's not? How I break away yes, from. I like that. We all need a little <laughs> escape for sure. Okay, Kara. <laughs> So I have two. Hunter Biden's lawyers met with DOJ today, and we all thought that this investigation was wrapping up last summer. So I am just going to try to find out with my colleagues what happened at that meeting, if there's any sense of when DOJ will make a decision in this case. My other one, thinking out loud, Ed Sheeran's in court, maybe again tomorrow for this copyright suit for his song, thinking out loud and whether it copied um, 
Marvin, yeah, Marvin, Marvin Gaye. Gaye. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, he will be back on the stand, possibly. So it be very interesting. I saw him in the cafeteria today. Wow. Yes. Very cool. Uh, he's just like the rest of us, <laughs> sitting there, eating lunch. Uh, so I'm looking forward to see if he'll be back there tomorrow and on the stand and what he says. I got it. You're stalking him in the cafeteria. Got just a little. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Thank you all very much. Great to spend tonight with you. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, inside the craze around new weight loss drugs, how it's impacting diet culture and body acceptance. Tune in for that. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.